0: interesting in that because we get the mechanics behind all of those interactions. And I think there's something relatable there. Anger is going, ah, we're going to do this thing. And maybe there are some other emotions in there going, is that the thing that we should
1: be doing? Yeah, that I think is one of the most relatable parts of the way that those scenes are portrayed. We're all familiar with making the decision to do something we know is shitty, but there's a bigger more in control part that pulls the trigger anyway.
0: Ramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Fae And I'm Charlene. And this week we're talking about the 2015 Disney Pixar movie Inside Out. We'd wanted to talk about this for a while but had thought that they might bring a sequel out at some point and we had been sort of holding off on that and then we bothered googling that and realized that there are currently no plans for a sequel so we're just going to talk about it now. We'll obviously be giving spoilers for the full movie Inside Out. We'll also be talking probably just a little bit about the short that they put out as a little sequel to it. Riley's first date question mark. If we have any other spoiler warnings or content warnings, we're going to drop those in right here. Hello, we actually have very few spoiler warnings today. We have one very small mention of something from Onward. It's not actually plot relevant. You should go and watch that film. It's been very underrated because it came out on streaming rather than going out in theatres because of COVID. We also did an episode on it, so you should definitely go and check that out as well.
1: We also have no content warnings. It's an unramblings miracle.
0: Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. Okay, so Inside Out tells the story of Riley, who originally lives in Minnesota but is moving to San Francisco at age 11, which honestly sounds great, but... Isn't because she's 11 and having to leave behind all of her friends and her hobbies and the things that she's known her whole life. Her parents are very much tied up in their own thing and aren't always as supportive as they might be and expecting her to be happy all the time. Uh, We see this very well because it's also mostly told from within her head with personified emotions and the general workings of her mind. We see the way that the change in her life is causing a huge change in the way that she understands the world and a change in how the emotions are interacting and understanding each other, which then tells itself also through the main story as she decides to run away from home and try to go back to Minnesota before eventually deciding not to do that and actually talking to her family about how she feels about these things, which means that they open up a good dialogue and everyone lets... Happily for at least the next brief period of time until they eventually do decide to do a sequel. Okay. I realize I editorialized a lot more in that than I normally would, but I'll let you uh, pick up the slack from that.
1: Okay. Inside Out follows Riley, who is about 11 years old, and her emotions as they try to keep her on an even emotional keel during a transition from Minnesota to San Francisco for her dad's job this is a pretty big upheaval for her previously her life had been very stable and she'd been a pretty happy go lucky kid who didn't need a whole lot of emotional handholding and things like that but this move has disrupted pretty much every aspect of her life and she's having a hard time coping with it and so her emotions who are mainly led by her emotion joy are not really sure how to handle the situation because joy is trying to push Riley to cope with things in the same way she always has and shutting down the emotion sadnesses, attempt to kind of take the wheel and handle things as Riley's processing the move and how it's affecting her. So the story ends up following Riley's transition as she's kind of coping with this move, but also the struggle of joy, her, who had previously been her primary emotion as she slowly comes to recognize the utility of sadness as an emotion which was previously not something that joy seemed to really get
0: yeah i think that's a pretty good summary okay so let's get into it i believe you were gonna introduce the first point
1: point. one of my favorite things about this movie and like a big reason that i love it so much is because the entire film is premised on a pretty simplified but also pretty accurate structure of neuropsychology Uh, And so that really appeals to me, obviously, with my background in psychology and, and social work as well, because a lot of the themes that are explored have to do with the way your brain works, the way humans process emotions and emotional situations, and the way that trauma affects somebody and changes what coping skills are relevant and helpful and also the way that family dynamics kind of play out in different situations. And you see all of that done really well and really elegantly in this movie in a way that is clearly very well researched. Like they definitely did their homework and you can tell if you watch the credits that they had like a mind behavior Institute and a couple of like prominent psychologists who study emotions and emotional development and things like that as a part of, the people consulting on this movie which i appreciate
0: yeah i mean it's obviously a story told about the emotions i think it's interesting and really well done how much of that is also part of the world building that they use in this i mean obviously a lot of it is set in the real world but the world of how riley's mind works is just built up through all of those little details
1: in a lot of ways, the real world is mainly providing context for what's happening in the world of Riley's cognition, sure. you know, so we're seeing her emotions reacting to things and traversing the deeper parts of her brain, you know, once they leave the control panel. But we're seeing the outside world in a large part so that what's happening inside Riley's cognition makes sense. Like, So that we understand why her islands of personality are falling down it's because we've just seen some event related to them go down
0: yeah so a lot of the watching of the movie for the two of us is me pausing the movie and saying so is that accurate i think one of the first things i asked you about was the basis of having sort of five key emotions i mean the parents have the same five emotions There's not those additional ones. Do you want to talk a bit about how accurate that is? Yeah.
1: So that's a little bit complicated because the study of emotions and also like universal facial expressions has kind of evolved over time. And depending on which things you're looking at, you'll get like a different list. But a lot of the time, those five that are there do come up in a lot of those lists. So there's like in some places, there's four and it'll be happiness, sadness, anger, and fear. And then like in other ones, there's like the seven universal facial expressions, which are supposed to map onto like seven universal emotions that you'll recognize on the faces of anyone anywhere in the world. And that's important because there are some facial expressions that are culturally influenced that are a little bit more nuanced. And so these are the ones that look the same, no matter where you are. And those are happiness, sadness, anger, fear, contempt, disgust and surprise. And contempt was added a little bit later. Paul Ekman, who's actually one of the people who was acknowledged as being an influence on this movie in earlier iterations of that list, had six and contempt was added later. i surprised it doesn't surprise me that it was dropped because it would be harder to sort of have that be anthropomorphized in the same way without really bleeding into the way that fear is portrayed. And so I think that in a lot of ways, fear and anger, in a certain extent, and disgust, like kind of pool aspects of surprise like being surprised by something gross or being surprised by being startled by something upsetting or being jarred by something unfair or that subverts an expectation in the case of anger so
0: so surprise is sort of more of an emotion that we see the emotions experience rather than its own thing
1: yeah yeah I would say that makes a lot of sense yeah and like you can even argue that there's some surprise and joy in terms of like delight of just being suddenly pleased by something unexpected but so it makes sense that that one isn't its own separate entity because i feel like that would be hard to distinguish you know yeah but yeah so i appreciate the way that that is done because it it is a reflection of some of the core ways that humans do emotionally respond to things
0: Yeah, so I mean, even if you would take the model of the seven of them, I think contempt is probably fairly well covered by disgust. So from a storytelling aspect, if you're looking to sort of trim down your cast of characters a little bit, then that seems like an obvious one to drop. If you, like, I can see the discussion in the writer's room where Paul Ekman's going, oh, yes, you should have this character. And they're like, but what if we didn't?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I can, yeah, I'd also agree that Most of the functions of disgust or most of the functions of contempt would be sort of rolled into disgust. There's not again a need for a distinct personality or like a distinct controller of the board for that for that kind of response. And also Riley is eleven. I don't know how much contempt. I mean, I guess eleven-year-olds can be contemptuous, but
0: um, I I know a four-year-old, and I'm pretty sure I've seen her show contempt. Well,
1: okay, fair enough.
0: I don't have the. Same basis of understanding of psychology that you do. Um, I have much more of the pop culture one. But I mean, there were certain things that I noticed that were just like fun little nods to the way things really work. One of the early ones is at the end of the first day that we see Riley goes to sleep, and Joy is like, okay, let's get these memories down to long term. And so, just sort of alluding to that idea that one of the things that we gain from sleep is putting those short term memories into a long term bank, as it were. At least that's my understanding. Um, what were some other ones that you saw in there?
1: Well, the sleep thing's interesting because we don't really know for sure why we sleep or what the function is. Um, and a big part of that is because there are some people who do not need hardly any sleep at all and seem to function just fine as far as their cognition. Hi, Shadow. But that is one of the like more prominent theories: is that sleep is a time that we do organize our experiences and decide like in some ways what's worth remembering and what's not
0: yeah i'm actually um um, halfway to being one of those people i've decided i don't need sleep the cognitive stuff really does take a hit for me personally but i'm working on
1: it yeah i remember i took sleep and dreaming and that was one of the things that our instructor really emphasized is that we actually don't know for sure like there are a lot of theories with a strong basis like there's a lot of support for dreams in particular going a few different ways like a lot of researchers have concluded that there's a good case for dreams being a part of like memory consolidation and things like that and also of processing practicing scenarios etc but Mm -hmm. also some evidence for it being a kind of cognitive noise while other stuff's going on in your brain so it's it's really weird um just why we sleep and why we dream is is very mysterious but as far as other stuff that i see in the movie and i'm like oh that's so cool with the way that it reflects the real world the forgetting people who, like, are going through the memories in the stacks to identify the dull ones as ones that Riley hasn't interacted with this memory in a long time. And so we can probably just throw that away, not bother keeping that, taking up space. And it's, like, phone numbers that she doesn't need to access anymore because she has a phone or, like, a whole lot of things from when she was really, really young. Like, we see the memory dump, the pit where all the memories end up kind of decaying forever. And almost all the ones that Joy picks up to interact with are from when Riley was, like, three or younger, which is a period of time that we don't really tend to keep memories of, like, later in life. Um, And so I like the way that that, like, ties in in a very accurate way. And, of course, there's, like, some cute visual things, too. Like, the stacks themselves that are the shelves full of memories. When it's zoomed out, you can see that they're, like curved and textured so that it looks like the cortex like the creases on the outside of our brains and similarly when they're going down into riley's subconscious the stairs that they're going down are textured in a way that's very similar to some of the structures in like the brainstem like the vermis the way that they're like sort of crinkled looking and that just makes me happy because it's just (laughs) like that's so cool that they did that
0: Uh, so there's a little attention to detail so what I'm hearing is that there is a small man in my brain that kicks up the advert jingles on a regular basis. Is that correct?
1: I mean, I don't, (laughs) I don't know exactly how that mechanism works, but definitely things are catchy. So yeah. And of course, one of the most thoughtful things that's done throughout the movie, as far as the story of joy and sadness and their journey through Riley's brain is that that whole thing is started off by joy, trying to prevent sadness from interacting with Riley's core memories because when she does she makes them sad she changes them from being happy memories or joyous memories to being sad memories and I appreciate that they're showing that interacting with your memories in a different context actively changes what those memories are because that's true we're going to talk about that a little bit more later but I just I love that that is such a central premise of the movie because a whole lot of people tend to think that the way you remember stuff is how it happened and like your memories don't change but that's just not how your brain works
0: yeah, yeah that's one of the reasons that eyewitnesses are a real problem in court cases because yeah what you think you saw and what you saw are often not the same thing
1: yeah very much the case
0: so like, one of the last things i wanted to talk about here before we get a bit more into this was just sort of get your take on the personality islands mm-hmm. that you sort of have going on there you've got the five at the start And then there are more complex versions of them later. They seem to be sort of how Riley chooses to define herself rather than something more innate. Is that how did you read that?
1: I think there's some good support for that. I I do think that they are the things that are important to her that she, as you say, uses to define herself. And I think that's borne out by the fact that when situations, occur that where she's damaging her connection to those ideas and intentionally going against her previously held ideas about why those things are important, that's when they they fall down. But then when those connections are restored, they come back when they come back in a more complex form that's a little bit more mature and nuanced now that she's had more experience of those things not being as simple as they were before, like Hockey Island and her relationship with her parents in particular like family island is a lot more complicated after she's had some pretty tough conversations with her parents about the way that she's been feeling and the support that she needs from them
0: yeah okay so they're sort of more like it's something where she drives the islands rather than the islands drive her
1: yeah because she will have an experience that forms a core memory and then that core memory either powers a new island Or will swap out the core of an existing island. So like with Family Island, she had a core memory that was one of her pretty early ones. That's very happy and stable with her parents in Minnesota. But then after she tries to run away and then she comes back and she has the very honest and emotionally intimate conversation with her parents. Where she talks about how she can't just be happy. This is hard and she's having a hard time feeling anything but sad right now as she's kind of adjusting. And her parents finally see that she's struggling with it and acknowledge that it's hard for them too and that it's not fair for them to expect that this is going to be just fine. That becomes a new core memory for Family Island, showing that her relationship with her parents has developed some more complexity as she's gotten older and been able to have those kinds of conversations with them and and get that kind of support. So then you see Family Island is a lot more complicated, like it's way more developed. There's more like sub areas and things in it later than it was before when her life and her relationship with her parents was really simple
0: yeah and that is a core cool memory base that is happy and sad right um is there a basis for the core cool memory idea in psychology or is that something that was more developed as a storytelling device
1: I- Honestly, um, all of things, so. <laughs> it's not really um, I'm, like, I'm not an expert on memory or anything, but it is true that when we access memories, the things that we're accessing them for and like the context of accessing a memory changes that memory and we don't necessarily have a way of telling. It's not like we have a version history or anything like that. So when you're accessing a memory, you don't necessarily remember that you remembered it differently a previous time, and like that goes back to what you were talking about before with like eyewitness responses. There have been a whole lot of studies showing that you can manipulate people's recall of a situation based on like using leading terms and phrases and things like that, yeah. um, or priming them with other stimuli beforehand that will put them in a frame of mind to think of things differently. And people will insist up and down as the day is long that, like, no, the way they remember it is accurate and true and how it happened and stuff. And even if you have, like, video evidence, people will be like, no, but that can't, that has to be fake or something because I remember it differently. But that's just because our minds are not infallible. Our brains code everything with a heavy lens of what's relevant to us, and that Lens is going to be different every time you're looking at something.
0: Okay, so I think that brings to an end the main part of just like our psychology lecture for this. <laughs> you can actually use this as college credit, I think. Is that, is that yeah, right?
1: Yeah, continuing education units, you know, not probably not. Um, but there are a lot of really great scholarly articles on memory and basic emotions and universal emotions and things like that. So,
0: yeah, I'm sure we'll have some interesting show notes for this episode. -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of the social cultural aspects of this, which is perhaps more what people are used to from us. So we see that everyone has these same five emotions within the story. Riley is obviously primarily piloted by joy throughout the movie. There's a question of whether that will change a little bit afterwards, but I think she's still sort of the leader position. Whereas. Her mother seems to be piloted by sadness and her dad seems to be piloted by anger with a sort of second in command of fear.
1: But both of her parents also have a more complex control panel situation where all of the emotions have some access to things at any given time. So and it it seems to be like with her dad that anger is the one like signing off on stuff, but every other emotion like still has like a control panel thing that they have that they can interact with. And her mom, it's more of like a shared like a committee situation where the sadness emotion is more of like first among equals kind of a thing,
0: yeah, I think that the mother's panel is much more of a discussion group, whereas mm-hmm. I think that the dad is modeled after a militaristic style yeah, of leadership very I mean there's all the there's the whole thing with the foot and mm-hmm. the two keys to be able to mm-hmm. initiate it and um, and
1: also uh, the repeated calling of the anger at Sir. Yeah. They all call him Sir. It's very hierarchical in its structure. We don't really see that with the mom. It's a much more egalitarian type of less hierarchical structure.
0: Yeah.
1: And then by contrast, Riley has a single single interaction control panel like there isn't room for more than one emotion to be doing something at a time
0: at first yes at the end of the movie she's got to that point where she has a more complex understanding but we'll get into that a bit more later i think the fact that that is how the parents are displayed is particularly interesting in this movie because it is i know it reads as possibly problematic to me but also as sort of expected like, it's almost lazy in. Okay, the dad is the one that gets angry and has to put his foot down, and the mother is like sort of not really ruled by happiness but gets by. And
1: I suppose I think it reflects pretty heavily on certain cultural influences, particularly with the dad, because anger and fear are the anger in particular, like, are the emotions that men are socialized to express in our culture. Like, it's generally frowned upon for men in our culture to express joy in a lot of ways to express fear particularly but fear often ends up coming out in men in our culture as anger because that's the way that our culture has told men it's okay for them to be upset or for them to be emotional about something and like respond strongly and so it makes sense that Anger is the one who is ultimately calling the shots with her dad as far as emotional expression goes.
0: Yeah. Uh, We need to get one of those, like, tacky soundboard things with a toxic masculinity button.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And (laughs) I described it without calling it that. But, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, it speaks to me of that internalized toxic masculinity, that idea that the only acceptable way to be clearly affected emotionally is to be angry if you're a man in our culture. And we see that, like, her mom is trying to enlist her dad's support to, like, gently probe and kind of see what's going on with their kid who seems upset. And her dad first does the, like, classic cliche sitcom thing of, like, saying the same thing that her mom already said that was because he clearly wasn't listening. And then when Riley is grumpy at him, which was the whole reason her mom was trying to get him to engage... He reacts defensively and angrily in response, which was entirely not what her mom was trying to signal him to do. Like, she was trying to be like, hey, something's wrong. We should be concerned. And he went straight to, like, ah, go to your room and stuff. So, yeah, it, it very much plays out in a classic sitcom type of bumbling dad, nurturing mom kind of a way.
0: Yeah, I think it's... Possibly problematic because I think that the dad is shown as having these toxic masculine traits, but I think a lot of it could be mapped very easily onto something like The Shining and going back to the first conversation we had on this podcast. Like, I think there's a lot of those same I'm going to jump to anger things going on there. It's sort of textbook toxic masculinity, but it's not actually commented on. It's just presented and there. And you get the same thing with the mother's sadness is that we don't see that as often portrayed as clearly in media but it's very much there in this movie but it's it's just there there's not then like a going back and talking about the fact that the mother is overall sad
1: i'd like to question for a second though we don't necessarily know that her mom is always headed up by sadness i mean we see her control panel is A much more of a committee type style and so it might just be that sadness is kind of leading like chairing right now because they're going through a difficult and stressful time that she's also sad about moving away from minnesota and all of her social networks and everything at the end they all three of them acknowledge that they're all having a hard time with this move and so maybe her mom isn't always having her emotions led that way It might sometimes be joy. It might sometimes be anger, depending on what's going on in Mm. her life. And I think that the structure of her mom's control panel leaves a lot more room for that kind of speculation. Her dad's system seems a lot more hierarchical. And so I kind of do think it implies that anger is always commanding officer of his emotions. But also, there's a lot of structure that is keeping that in check, keeping his anger from just going off without any other influences. We see a lot of waiting. Um, And a lot of checking in with the other emotions to see what else is going on, what other streams of information there Hmm. are, which at least seems to show that her dad probably doesn't at least have anger, like uncontrolled anger issues that he might respond angrily when he is responding emotionally more than other stuff. But he's not abusive necessarily or like just an angry person all the time.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that I don't think that there's necessarily the support for the different emotions switching through those leadership roles. But I suppose that in Riley, when Joy is absent, her other emotions sort of take charge to varying degrees. And it is anger that mostly takes over because she is angry about the move to some degrees. So I guess that that's that might be there and I might be being unfair.
1: Well, and then at the end, Joy steps away and has sadness take over because she acknowledges that sadness is what's needed in that moment when Riley comes home and needs to talk to her parents about why she ran away and needs to express what's going on yeah you know joy yields acknowledging that it's really not her place to be running things right now
0: yeah okay that's fair that's a little bit more transparent because there's only one control terminal for Riley at that point Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that also, signals it being kind of a problem is the fact that both Riley and her mother seem to sort of have this expectation to have to stay happy to keep the family happy, particularly keeping their dad happy. Riley's mother, I think, actually says that explicitly at some point.
1: Yeah, when she does that, it, I cringe like every time watching the movie. It's just like, no, what you're sh- doing is shutting down your kid and making her like telling her that. She doesn't have room to express any non positive emotions right now. It's a big part of why Riley tries to shut down her sadness and it doesn't work.
0: And I think that you see that play out as well in the fact that she seems to take it as her role to try and like break the tension when her parents are arguing about the moving truck and she comes in and like plays hockey with a ball of paper or something.
1: Yeah. Again, one of those moments that makes me cringe when it's just like, Your kids shouldn't feel like they have to manage you emotionally uh, and like it's their job to keep everyone happy. But that happens a lot. A lot of kids do get that message because they learn it as a power that they have to cheer people up. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad for kids to cheer their parents up. I mean, that's an important social skill, but it shouldn't be a thing that's so ingrained that it Precludes them also having their own emotional response and getting the emotional support that they need when they are in a negative emotional place.
0: Yeah. I think that we sort of see this as a culmination with. We see both of her parents at various points trying to sort of ignore the sadness of situations. Like when her dad has yelled at her and sent her to a room, he tries to come in and like make amends. And rather than being like, hey, Let's talk about the problems and things. His reaction is to try and be silly with her. Like, there's no acknowledgement of any sadness on either part. It's just the, like, we should play around. Oh, you're not in the mood, I'll come back later.
1: Yeah, and there's also not even any acknowledgement that, like, he overreacted. I mean, he, he says things got kind of out of hand or something like that, but it's a statement that's very clearly avoiding placing any blame, including taking any blame for himself. And that is something we see adults do toward kids a lot in our culture, you know, not just ours, but I know a lot of the time adults don't learn to apologize to kids when they do something wrong. And I think it's important to do that because it's hard for then kids to grow up and apologize and be honest about when things are their fault as they get older. If they learn that apologizing is a weak thing to do or something that puts you in a bad position when really sometimes it's a necessary step to resolving a problem. And sometimes it is your fault. Sometimes you did things that were not okay, and you need to acknowledge that. Even if you had good reasons for it or whatever, it's important to acknowledge that you hurt somebody else. And that's what her dad avoids doing. And when he sees like, okay, well, being silly is not going to work, he doesn't even then try apologizing. He just drops it entirely and is basically waiting for a time when she will be amenable to being silly or like letting it go
0: yeah and that modeling from her father and her mother being like hey we have to be happy because it keeps everyone else happy becomes a driving force in the whole movie like i don't think that it's ever explicitly stated but it's a modeling that you see joy pick up like her oh, definitely her response is Riley can't ever feel sadness. That's not allowed. Like I know we have all these emotions and then there's sadness and sadness. Stand in this chalk circle. Don't touch anything. And we'll try and persuade, like, even like when Bing bong is sad, is like, don't be sad. Just just stop being sad. That's the only reaction she can have. And that's very clearly something that Riley slash Joy has picked up from her parents.
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And you can see that because there hasn't been room for being sad in Riley's interactions with her parents, that Joy and to an extent Riley have never acknowledged or understood the function of sadness. I mean, that's an important journey in the movie, which we'll talk about more later. But like that's a super important idea that because of that shutting down, certain recognitions are just never made
0: yeah so let's talk about joy we get the majority of the movie from her point of view and a lot of the driving force is her sort of failure to understand what her role and what others roles are
1: yeah like joy seems to identify herself with riley in a kind of unhealthy way like she views herself as the primary or main emotion and like all the other ones as secondary and not as important And we also see her do some things that like, I don't know, they're almost kind of creepy. Like when she's watching some of Riley's memories, she'll like mimic Riley, like her physical movements, like the ice skating around the control center to mimic a memory of Riley ice skating on the pond in a way where like she's inserting herself as Riley in that memory in a kind of a weird way that shows that she views herself and Riley as way more entwined than any of the other emotions.
0: Yeah, um it's funny one of the words i have written down in my notes is infatuation, which mm-hmm. i think goes too far, but it is like it's not a romantic infatuation, but there is a issue there. We are given her as sort of an unreliable narrator as she seems to at least define herself as Riley to an extent. Like, I think it's easy to watch the film and think of Riley and Joy as being almost the same person. And I think that's because that's how Joy sees it.
1: Yeah. And we see them doing the same things. And that's partially, I think, because Joy has been sort of in the driver's seat for a lot of Riley's life. Because a lot of Riley's life was very stable and she's a pretty happy kid. There was never really any reason for the other emotions to take over for significant periods of time. So she's identified herself as being sort of the pilot of Riley. And then when she's still trying to pilot Riley, but she's trying to pilot Riley through a traumatic situation where she isn't happy. And so it just ends up coming out very performative and forced. And not very authentic and just ultimately really unhealthy because it's Riley, you know, not accessing the, emotion, the emotions that she really needs to be feeling and processing at that time.
0: Yeah. The thing is, like, as a protagonist, she's kind of the worst.
1: Joy, not Riley.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, I am I think that the protagonist of the movie is primarily Joy.
1: I would agree. I just wanted to be clear because yeah. there are a lot of she's in this movie. I recognize in some of the conversation about joy and sadness, sometimes the she is not clear
0: there's a lot of the actions that you see her taking that I don't know whether it's either as an adult or in repeat viewing it's you're just like screaming no at the tv it's like that's like she's so self-involved
1: yeah she is and I think there is an extent to which that it reflects well on the emotion joy itself being somewhat present centered mm. um there are things such things as long-term happiness. I'm not saying that there's not. And there is such a thing as a happy temperament, which Riley does seem to have. But joy itself, like, it seems to be very centered on, like, how I'm feeling right now. And that seems to be what joy, the character, is always focused on. She always wants Riley to be happy right now. She doesn't want the other emotions to be in charge, particularly not sadness. She doesn't want sadness to affect the core memories because it's threatening to her dominion over Riley, basically. Because all the previous core memories were happy. And they were joy memories. So, yeah, it's, in some ways, it is that, like, you know, there's that expression of when you've been used to having power or being dominant. Like, equality starts to feel like oppression. And joy is very much in that place during this movie. Sadness, in particular, is starting to have more power because she needs to be have more power over riley right now and joy feels threatened by that and she doesn't understand why the change is necessary and so she's just fighting it every step of the way and some of the ways that she fights it are really ugly and very toxic like and very um selfish as you say she's very selfish with the way she treats bing bong and like the bag of core memories like she saves the bag of core memories before she saves him she leaves sadness behind at a certain point when she thinks that bringing sadness with her is going to contaminate the core memories with sadness. Like she literally ditches one of her compatriots. Like we see from her point of view from the beginning of the movie that sadness was the first other emotion there with her. So that's literally her oldest colleague and friend. And she ditches her at the moment it seems like it's going to threaten her power base to take her with her.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting that Joy's relationship with sadness is so bad compared to the others. I think it also makes a lot of sense because a lot of the emotions are nuances and reactions, whereas sadness and joy are the antithesis of each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can see why Joy wouldn't understand what the function of sadness is. Yeah, It's only when she herself experiences being sad when she's lost all hope and is in the pit of lost memories or whatever they call that.
0: I think it's the memory dump.
1: The memory dump. Um, When she's in the memory dump, that she finally gets it. Because then Bing Bing Bong is there to kind of console her, and also she's just able to feel the issue and be overwhelmed in a lot of the ways that Sadness tried to explain her function, you know? Yeah.
0: So we've sort of been hinting at it, and the basis for the plot of the movie is this sort of development of nuance in emotions, as joy realizes that she's not the world she's part of a wider world it's that whole movement from there being a a small console with one person piloting versus a larger console with five we see the increasing complexity of the personality islands and of the memories as we talked about you get those ones that are combinations of different memories which one could argue they might always have been to some degree but there's a better understanding of it at this point And I want to talk a little bit about how the story gets us there, because I want to say, and I don't know if this is too strong, so I want to see what you say, that that realizing that she's part of a whole and like a larger thing is something that both Joy and Riley are going through in the movie.
1: I think so, particularly because at the end, she is able to realize that it's not just her who's having a rough time. And trying to not break down during the move, you know, that way her experience of the move is wider and she can have that normalized as, no, this isn't a failure on your part to just accept this happily, you know, and with equanimity. No, we're also struggling. It's hard for us, too. We also miss our friends in our house and everything in Minnesota and, like, the memories we made there. Like, this is hard for all of us. You're not failing at anything this is a totally healthy and normal response and we're really sorry that we weren't supporting you in the way that you needed. and i appreciate that that's there because before she feels very alone in it and like she's not allowed to get their support for it because they're too busy with the other stuff that they're dealing with and it's kind of similar for joy where she's kind of been feeling like she's doing this all by herself and maybe the other ones occasionally chime in here and there but she's the one who has to run the show and it's all on her shoulders to keep Riley happy but what she doesn't realize is that while she's an important part of enabling Riley to be happy she's not the only or even necessarily in any situation the most important part of keeping Riley healthy and making sure that she retains the emotional capacity for happiness because the other emotions are just as important in reacting to the world for that.
0: Yeah I think that there's like beyond the dynamic that Riley comes to understand within her family there's also just the geographic relocating and finding out about a new area with going to San Francisco and things being strange and unusual to her. I maintain that I don't understand how they had that interaction in the pizza shop. Did they go in and say we want some pizza and then they just offered them broccoli pizza and that was... Like I mean, they acknowledge it's weird that they only serve one thing, but how does the conversation... Never mind, not the point. But then similarly to the discovery of San Francisco, you have the emotions, have the discovery of how they fit in with their family, Riley's family, the emotional family, and also they have joy and sadness going out and discovering the rest of the brain that they've not really been to before. They've just read about it in the manual.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that too, that there is this new environment that they didn't necessarily mean to go to, but end up in, and it gives them, as you say, a better understanding of their place in that larger system.
0: Yeah, and I think the other big thing is that we do see both Riley and Joy attempting to approach the world purely through happiness, and then this sort of sadness and trauma getting in the way of that, and then how... And then them having to reconcile with that. And they both sort of react with this performative joy.
1: Yeah, and it makes sense if, you know, you're temperamentally one way and that has always worked out fine for you. If those are the coping skills that you've developed, you're going to try them even when it's not necessarily the time for those coping skills. It's going to take a little bit more trial and error to figure out, okay, now I need to do something different because this is not the appropriate way to handle this. I mean, it's like with her dad in that conversation, you know, he tries what has always worked to cheer up his kid, being silly and goofy. But this is a much bigger issue. And it's not even just the blow up at the dinner table this is about. And he's pretending like it is like it's a little thing like that. And it's not. And so, you know, he needs over time to understand that you need to try something else. And eventually when she's upset again and she's a little clearer about what she's upset about, although honestly he should have really been able to figure out that this was probably related to the huge life altering move that they're in the middle of. But he is later at the end able to react when she's upset again and is clearer about that being what the problem is with a more appropriate response of being emotionally available and, Vulnerable and normalizing her experience and validating it with his own experience. Yeah. He gets there eventually, but it takes him a while.
0: So, we sort of hinted at it earlier. The sort of key moment in the film is when this eternal attempting to only feel happy and trying to avoid sadness really comes to a head. All the way through, like, Joy is literally avoiding sadness and any sort of sense of depression is kind of demonstrated as feeling useless for feeling sad.
1: Even Sadness herself seems to think she is useless and doesn't serve a purpose, doesn't really acknowledge or recognize why she's important.
0: Right. And I I mean, I think that there's a fairly good case for saying that the relationship between joy and sadness is an abusive one joy very clearly understands the role of all the other emotions like literally lists them off at the start but then gets the sadness like sadness is also here yeah they serve no purpose and seems to sort of tell sadness that if not explicitly at some point before the start of the movie then very much through her actions of go away don't touch anything
1: yeah it's very much oh you're such a bummer go away <laughs> Why are you even here? Can you just be not involved in anything I'm doing, please?
0: Yeah. And I mean, all of that, like, it's the, it's one of the things that makes Joy so frustrating as a protagonist is that she doesn't understand why sadness is there. But most of what sadness does is, while apologizing, explain why she's there.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, sadness is constantly giving her own synopsis of, like, what she's doing and why she's doing it. But part of why she exists is so that there's some space to feel overwhelmed and sort through life's problems. Like, we see her exercising her functions of, like, listening to Bing Bong when he's sad and validating why he's upset and consoling him, but not in the way that Joy does, where she's basically trying to fix everything by just saying, well, just ignore the problem, you know, and even just saying things that just aren't true, like trying to convince Bing bong that he is still relevant to Riley when he's not. He's her imaginary friend from when she was very, very young and she's 11 now. No, she is done with him. He's right. And it's hard. He's in a rough situation. But sadness is able to acknowledge the reality of that situation in a kind and supportive way where he feels heard, you know, and he's able to get through that experience and move forward and figure out what. That situation means for him going forward whereas joy just fails to recognize that that's something riley also has to do that yeah. she has to sort through the things that are not happy things that sort through the things that are painful and difficult so that she can decide what to do about them and how to move forward
0: yeah there's a point fairly early on and it's passed off as a joke where sadness says that crying helps her slow down and obsess over the weight of the world's problems
1: exactly yeah
0: but that's sometimes what you need mm-hmm.
1: so yeah i mean it helps you acknowledge that the problems are there which is something that joy keeps trying to avoid doing she wants to pretend that there aren't any problems and just focus on the happy things and that's just not that's just not how life works and that's not a reflection of a full and complete life i mean she finally understands that when she herself is in the memory dump for a while and doesn't see a way out
0: yeah she certainly like i think comes to a lot of realizations when she's in the memory dump about the importance of sadness and that's sort of been a bit of a progression and we sort of see that play out in how she makes sure to save sadness and take her back to the control room with her and her sort of understanding that sadness is the one that needs to get the idea out and is the one who needs to take the helm for that conversation at the end
1: yeah, and I think there's something very important to the fact that sadness is the only one who can affect the control panel right now because sadness is what Riley needs to engage with emotionally. Yeah. The other ideas or the other emotions try to take the idea out, the running away idea, and it won't budge. And yeah. it's because Riley has totally shut down because the only emotion that can really break through right now is sadness.
0: And she's been denying herself that.
1: Right, she's been she's been incapable of accessing it first because joy was pushing sadness away and then because sadness was literally inaccessible and riley completely shut down emotionally
0: yeah and i think that the shutting down of the control panel is a really like we talked about the way certain things are shown very well i think that that shutting down of the control panel as an emotional shutdown is very well done
1: i agree it does show how like in that traumatic situation when she didn't have a way to process her feelings in an emotionally appropriate way she couldn't process them or anything at all and just became emotionally numb
0: yeah and i think that the other thing that we wanted to talk about as far as how the psychology is shown is the thing you mentioned earlier about how interacting with memories can change them Mm -hmm. and also how different perspectives of the same memory can feel different so you talked about when she's down in the memory dump and she realizes that depending on how, what how you view that one memory, it can be happy or sad. Did you want to talk more about that?
1: Yeah, I did like that scene a lot because it shows it in that particular part. Like you're talking about the the memory that's both blue and gold, that's of the hockey championships, right? And so Joy thinks of that memory as there was a hockey championships and we sat up in the twisted tree with mom and dad, and then there was. The team was there and they like lifted Riley up and everyone was like together and things and that was really happy and supportive. But Sadness's perspective of that, yeah, that was a really bad day up until that point. Like Riley was really upset because she missed the last goal. That was why they didn't win the championships. And so she felt like it was all her fault and she went up to the tree and was crying and her parents came up to be supportive and cheer her up and hug her and stuff, and then. The team saw that she was upset and came around and they rallied around her and, you know, made sure she knew that she was their friend and valued and they loved her and that they were, they could still have fun together and they didn't blame her for that situation. And so you can see that you don't actually know what's going on if you're seeing only one part of that, either of that. Like it could seem like just a really horrible traumatic day if you only have the sad part It can seem like a great, awesome, ah, yay, you know, everyone loves me type of moment if you only see the happy part. And it's really only when you have both of them together and you're able to kind of put together the full experience that you really know what happened. And I think that's a big part of Joy recognizing that sadness enabled the joy that happened. Like she wouldn't even have had that core memory of the team all rallying around Riley and like the fun experience with her parents in the tree if Riley hadn't been sad first.
0: Which I think is an interesting thing on the whole, like, you can't tell what happiness is unless there is also some sadness in it.
1: As a context, as something to compare it to? Yeah. Do
0: you disagree?
1: I'm not sure. I think you can have pure happiness, but I think context definitely helps us to identify our emotions. and knowing how to identify our emotions is a really important part of being able to express them in a healthy way like you can't tell someone what's bothering you or how you're feeling if you can't recognize what you're feeling
0: yeah that's fair so we talked about bing bong earlier and i wanted to just sort of take a look at his trajectory and how he's characterized because i think he does a lot to represent everything that's happening on a larger scale within the story in a more condensed way and I think it might just be an interesting little lens to look through. Okay. So, I mean, as far as the sort of fun psychology applications in there, I mean, obviously having a physical representation of an imaginary friend is... I Adorable. Adorable. There we go. That's the word for it. And I like some of the way that the characterization is shown in the way that children understand things. And, like, his whole, oh, animals were all the rage back then.
1: Yeah, when you think about the age kids are when they have an imaginary friend, it is often also the time that they are getting really into animals because they're starting to finally understand that they're different. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like the fascination with peekaboo when kids finally understand object permanence. It's like, oh, I finally understand that cats and dogs are different things. Now I love animals.
0: There are a while where babies don't understand that cats aren't babies.
1: I don't know, but there's usually a period when little kids just generalize all small fluffy things is like being the same thing like they'll just call everything a kitty or everything a puppy or something like Mm. depending on what they've learned first it takes them a while to be able to differentiate that you know dogs and cats are different and you know birds are a different thing etc bunnies are different whatever Uh, And kids are just delighted with knowing stuff which is fair knowing stuff is pretty awesome
0: i've heard that you're a fan i am a fan there's obviously other th- elements of that as well things like he's made of cotton candy and christ candy i don't know that just warms me in some way but within regards to the emotional sense i think one of the most apparent moments we get of how joy is dysfunctional is that when bing bong is upset and crying her reaction is stop being sad we need to go do the thing come on let's go do the thing we've seen her react that way to sadness before But there's a stronger backstory there of her not having patience for sadness, whereas her connection with Bing Bong has been much more excitement. Oh, you're the imaginary friend that I used to love and had sort of forgotten about a bit.
1: Yeah, like, she loves Bing Bong. When she she recognizes him, like, oh, we had such great times. Like, that is an old friend to her. And then she just turns on him on a dime. Like, the moment he's sad and the moment that he's not useful... She's very instrumentalizing of him in a really gross way.
0: Yeah. Even for someone like that, like, she just... Her instinct is to ignore an emotion that isn't joy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think even with the other emotions, like, she tolerates fear because she understands that it keeps him safe. But Bing Bong is also the first time that we really clearly see what sadness does as good. And I think the first time that Joy sees it, like, we see... Sadness explaining her role and trying to achieve those things before but with Bing Bong we get the example of this is sadness fixing something.
1: Yeah and Joy acknowledges and sees that sadness helped somehow but she totally doesn't understand how sadness helped like what was the point of you listening to him being sad like why did that make him not sad anymore I don't understand and it's very frustrating to watch. Because Sadness is, again, in that position where she's trying to validate her existence, even though she's already, like, literally just in front of Joy, demonstrated the value of her existence. And Joy still doesn't get it.
0: He he was sad, so I listened to what was upsetting him. Nope, I don't understand it. He should have just stopped being sad. Yeah,
1: and not only listened, but I also validated his feelings and expressed to him that they make sense didn't minimize them or try and dismiss them in any way gave gave him some space to express those things and feel those things and he's still not not getting okay i don't
0: (sighs) it's interesting how little interaction bing bong and sadness have in general they have that moment together and then otherwise it's largely sadness seems a little unsure of why bing bong is there
1: and i can understand that like sadness wouldn't have the close connection to the imaginary friend in the same way because it's An imaginary friend is a playmate.
0: Yeah. But I think that there's also an argument that Bing Bong's story also sort of parallels Riley's transition within the story of having to move on and be like understand that there's a wider world and that parts of you don't fit into it as much anymore.
1: To a certain extent, I think it's way more dramatic for Bing Bong, obviously, as he, you know, entirely ceases to exist. But riley is having to come to terms with entire spheres of her life no longer being relevant anymore and her friendships transforming into much more distant much less close relationships than they were before
0: did you have anything else you want to say about bing bong
1: just like a side note about bing bong like i wonder if he always was conceived of by riley like when she was little and he was her present imaginary friend in like the tattered clothes with sort of like that vagrant aesthetic that he kind of has going on, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. the like that particular style of clown from like the 1920s, you know, where it's all tattered clothes and hat and things. That's very much m- the model of what he's wearing. I wonder if that's a reflection of his place in Riley's mind, like at the present day when she's 11 and he's not as relevant and he is just kind of hopping around from place to place sort of digging in the garbage of Riley's brain because he's not relevant, or if he was always that sort of fun clown type of
0: Yeah, I wonder if I can find an answer aesthetic. to
1: that. There might not be an answer to that. I was just, you know, an idle thought.
0: Okay, so I have a vague answer for you. In the flashback scenes where Joy is remembering Bing Bong and young Riley, he does seem to still have that aesthetic. He does look cleaner, mm. like He looks younger somehow. I don't know how that creature looks younger, but managed it.
1: Okay, interesting.
0: So I think that's all the main things that we want to talk about. But I think the big question is, and this might get a little bit more personal than we usually do, is what makes this story so relatable?
1: Well, I think there are ways in which this story is really relatable to anyone and also ways that it's very relatable to us specifically, like me and you. And so there are certain, like, interactions that are very relatable I think to anyone like the fight at the dinner table that back and forth is I think very relatable because every kid has been in that situation and every parent has been in that situation and even if you didn't really have those kinds of arguments with your parents one of your siblings probably did sometimes you know where it's like your parents trying to ask you about something but you're being kind of closed off and defensive or your siblings being very closed off and defensive Then one of your parents gets defensive about you being defensive and like things sort of escalate in that way until you're in trouble now. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I think we've all kind of seen how that happens and the breakdown of how those different small pieces are sort of contextualized, maybe misinterpreted by the other parties in the conflict is very relatable. So particularly like there's Riley who's upset and irritated because she's going through this huge upheaval and the only emotions in her head are anger fear and disgust and so her mom is trying to ask her about school which was a horrifically embarrassing situation and she's like i don't want to talk about it and her mom is like oh something's wrong and then her dad is like how was school and she's like leave me alone and he's like ah you're back talking me and it kind of goes from there
0: and i think it's interesting in that because we get the mechanics behind all of those interactions and i think there's something relatable there i know that you mentioned the fact that like there's anger is going ah we're gonna do this thing and maybe there are some other emotions in there going is that the thing that we should be doing but anger's sort of winning out in the moment
1: yeah that i think is one of the most relatable parts of the way that those scenes are portrayed and that There are other parts of the personality that are maybe not as on board. And I think that we're all familiar with being in an argument or, you know, an agitated state and making the decision to do something we know is shitty. And like, there's a part of us that knows this is the wrong move. This is going to bite us in the ass later. We probably don't want to do this. But there's a bigger, more in control part that pulls the trigger anyway and says the hurtful thing or does the pain in the ass thing that escalates the conflict instead of de-escalating it and yeah you know there's a part of you that knew what you were doing and I think that that's important and we see that for both Riley and her dad like her dad's other emotions are sort of like battening down the hatches kind of yeah while her dad is like okay we're we're doing this and we see fear and disgust kind of trying to wrestle with anger a little bit. And anger is just like, nope, I got these controls now. Like, nope, we're doing this. And of course, there's the things we've already talked about with the changing of memories by interacting with them. And I think one of the more relatable things in this is the way that a memory can change based on the context that you're looking at it later. You know, so... The way that those core memories are changing, the way that her recollections about things that made her happy in Minnesota makes her sad and start crying at school. That's all very relatable. It's like, these things did make me happy, but now I'm in this circumstance where I have to acknowledge that my relationship to those things has changed.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's portrayed well in the movie as being the move. I think probably a more universal thing for that is thinking about past relationships moments that were very happy at the time but are soured by the fact that, that relationship has ended
1: definitely i think particularly for people who are maybe older and have experienced that but not even necessarily romantic relationships but like your friendship with somebody that you have then had a falling out with and you know you yeah. could remember the good times but yeah it becomes tinged with sadness or tinged with anger when you reflect on the new context of the more recent events I also think like one of the other scenes that I think is really relatable is that scene we talked about before where her dad is trying to then talk to her about the fight that they had at dinner and, you know, him trying to provoke her into being silly and just sort of letting it go and kind of moving on. But her being in that position where she's like, no, that's not where I am right now. I think everyone has had that kind of situation where someone tries to pretend like something isn't as serious as it is or force something to kind of blow over when that's just not where you are. And maybe you've been on the other side of that, where you're trying to cheer someone up or get someone to move past something, and they've rebuffed you and rejected your attempt to reconcile by ignoring. I think that everyone has some version of that experience.
0: So it's sort of, it makes it relatable by, I guess the movie is, to an extent, a string of scenes that are probably designed to be fairly universal distillations of reactions and that might be why the father and the mother character in some way do seem so generic sure is so that they can be a large number of people's mother and father
1: and then there's also some ways in which this movie is particularly relatable to you and i and anyone else who's had a pretty significant move around that age and i know both of us did so when i was about eight or nine Um, We moved from California, where all my family was, to Maryland because my stepdad had to go to dive school. And it was a very difficult transition for me in similar ways to what's portrayed in this movie. And this was obviously because I'm significantly older than a 10-year-old in 2015. There wasn't, like, the same kind of accessibility to, like, stay in touch with people as there is in this movie. So I was also leaving behind all my friends. I was leaving behind regular interactions with family and and stuff like that. So it was really, really difficult emotionally for me. And also my parents kind of assumed that I would be fine because I had historically handled the moves we had made around California pretty decently without too much trouble. And my brother had historically been the one more prone to having issues with change. So they were very focused on making sure he was okay in processing things in a decent way and just kind of assumed I'd be okay which did leave me in a similar situation to Riley of feeling like there wasn't room to be upset or cope with things and eventually did lead to some outbursts and things that are kind of embarrassing to think on in retrospect in terms of just not being able to handle things in very public settings.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I had a pretty similar experience to that. I was like around 10 when we moved from Southeast England to Mid Wales. And I know it was probably not quite so hard for me. I'm a few years younger than you. So like, While I think it was AOL email at first, I did have some way of keeping in touch with my old friends. And then, you know, thankfully MSN Messenger came along and it was a strange world. Uh, Not like now, now is perfectly normal. Uh, But I mean, it's that same thing of like, I was the child that they were like, they'll be fine, we need to pay attention to the other ones. There wasn't a whole lot of attention on me. And like the fact that both of us have that experience makes me think it's interesting that Inside Out doesn't have a sibling in it mm. but maybe that's just that. those are the experiences that we had and other people don't have that
1: yeah well I mean even aside from a move like I know a few of my friends who had a similar experience of being the child that your parents assumed would be fine and so didn't really open a whole lot of opportunity for emotional support because they thought you didn't need it and so they just kind of left you hanging <laughs> in terms of yeah. that and or made you feel like you couldn't bring those kinds of issues to them because there's an expectation that they're kind of relying on you to be easy easy to parent and and i know that's not just my experience i have a few other friends i've talked to who've had very similar relationship with their parents
0: yeah it's difficult for me because i don't think i ever did have much in the way of outbursts but i was definitely in that position where they were like oh yes it's great because you're happy and i'm like sure yeah okay yeah. But I don't think it ever really came to a head with me. I think it's just like looking back on it, it's like, I wasn't as happy as was a parent at the time, but...
1: Yeah, and I think that it can be difficult for parents to see that when you're, when you make a, an expression like that, that it does kind of shut your kid down from feeling like they can tell you if something is wrong. Yeah. Because then they feel like they have a responsibility to be fine.
0: Yeah. But hey, we turned out okay.
1: Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there are also a lot of little scenes, like I know the move is an overarching thing that's very relatable for us, but I know that I went to a whole lot of different schools growing up, and so that experience that they show of her, of Riley being like the new kid and like feeling kind of awkward and kind of hoping no one will call on her, but of course they do pick you out because you're new, that is an experience I had like all the time growing up. And then the awkwardness of trying to find somewhere to sit. And I think that's universal. Because even if you haven't done a huge move, you're not going to be in the same school from elementary school all the way through the end of high school, you know. At some point, you're going into middle or high school or whatever or something and going to have that new kid experience.
0: Yeah. So I think that answers the big question and also provides a small therapy session for us. (laughs) I think the bigger question, though, is... Is Riley queer-coded?
1: So it's an interesting question and I have seen arguments both that she is and that there isn't any support for that really because I remember seeing stuff about that come up not long after the movie came out. Hmm. So I've seen an argument that she might be coded as non-binary or even trans because some of her emotions are represented as female and some of them are represented as male. Whereas her mother has a panel of female emotions and her dad has a panel of male emotions. And so I've seen people argue that that's evidence for like, if you're cisgender, you'll have a consistent panel. But I could also see those being culturally influenced where Riley might be identifying her fear and her anger as more masculine coded emotions because those are the primary and secondary emotions of her dad. And then the other ones which we see a little bit more active with her mom, could be coded as feminine for her for that reason. So that might be a modeling thing or like a cultural messages thing, like that sadness and joy and disgust are more feminine emotions and may not necessarily reflect on her gender identity.
0: Yeah, I like the idea that Disney would make someone quietly non-binary, but I'm not sure I believe it. (laughs) But I think that there's probably an argument for being... Queer in some way just with some of like the quiet coding the world very much acknowledges LGBT people in some way or another I mean the fact that it's said in San Francisco is-, is a starting point there's a joke about a guy who looks like a bear that is a quiet LGBT joke
1: they also walk past a bookstore at one point that I think is definitely intended to be Like an LGBT bookstore. It's Penny and Rita, I think. And when you look up close, it's got a bunch of flyers for like activism and things. And it just seems very much like a small independent LGBT bookstore.
0: Yeah. When she first arrives in San Francisco, she's also wearing a rainbow sweater, which I've seen some people argue is uh, supposed to represent the colors of the emotions, except that that doesn't work because orange is included as well. So, Mm. there's not just the five colors for the emotions. And Bing Bong also has a flower on his lapel that is rainbow, also including orange.
1: Mm. Okay. I think it's kind of slim.
0: Sure. But I think that this is like Disney, Pixar has been moving towards including LGBT characters in one way or another. I can't remember what the film was. It wasn't great. But there was like a character where everyone was very excited because he was like canonically gay. Mm -hmm. And he really like. The only reference to it is that he comes out as gay at the end as kind of like a joke because the one, the female protagonist has been into him the whole movie and like asks him out and it's kind of playful for laughs. But I think that they have been moving towards including more and more characters. I think there might be another movie coming out before too long that does include some overtly LGBT characters.
1: One Onward has an explicit mention of a lesbian relationship.
0: Right. Yes. Good point. So I wonder whether th- this was them, like, just dipping a toe in the water and going, what if we just, like, put some hints? Will people be upset by pride colors?
1: I don't know. I- I'm not saying that there's nothing there, but I don't think there's enough to, like, really make the case. I do think that they have not ruled it out, though. There's the point where um, she's at hockey or whatever, and she bumps into Jordan and is giving him her water bottle and- or his water bottle, and you see in his mind, he's freaking out because girl, like, ah. And then in the short Riley's first date, which is like really her parents think that maybe this is a date because Jordan has picked her up to go skating with friends. There's never any confirmation from Riley's perspective that she thinks of it that way or thinks of Jordan in that way. She's more focused on the social embarrassment factor of her dad being alone and embarrassing with one of her friends. Um, And so I do think that's interesting where you can definitely make a case for Jordan at least being nervous around girls, if not being interested in them romantically. But you never really get anything from that perspective from Riley. You get the boyfriend uh, generator, but it's super shallow and two-dimensional in Imagination Land. Yeah. And that could easily just be more of like a cultural thing. In fact, the fact that there's so little depth to that generated boyfriend idea... I think it, in some ways, could be an argument that that's not something she's actually particularly interested in at this point, if ever.
0: Yeah, I think that, like, with the short, it's never confirmed in a way that would be so easy to do. Mm-hmm. But I th- I think that there's definitely room for it to be a case of, like, maybe Jordan thinks he's picking her up for a date, whereas Riley might have just been like, you're going to meet me beforehand? And, okay, fine, sure.
1: Yeah. But. Um, I remember when we were... Talking about this, I think I remember you saying that maybe her jealousy about Meg making the new friend, her friend from Minnesota, and talking about how it's almost like mind reading like with the new girl on the hockey team, and Riley gets super jealous and closes the computer, that that might also be an indication of her maybe having romantic feelings for her friend, but I could also see that going either way, being just a best friend or maybe also a crush. Who knows?
0: Yeah, I don't think that there's anything to say that she is one way or another. The question is really just, is there some queer coding in general? To which I think that there's a little bit. And I kind of hope that they do a sequel and maybe explore it, but...
1: Yeah, I I could very much see all of these arguments going either way as far yeah. as them just being reflections of the environment and the culture like them being in san francisco and and stereotypes about emotions being feminine or masculine etc and modeling type things there's or... also
0: stereotypes about the fact that she plays ice hockey
1: well yeah point being i don't think there's anything definitive definitely but i wouldn't say it's ruled out
0: yeah i think that's fair okay so i think that is the bigger question We have a couple of tangents that I wanted to make sure we mentioned. One of them that we just didn't get to earlier was the fact that anger reads the newspaper so much.
1: Oh yeah, I love that detail, I, I really do. Because anger is usually founded in a subverted expectation. Like you can't be mad about something if you had no expectation to be disrupted. That's part of why Joy characterizes anger as like being very invested in what's fair. And so I love that Anger is staying up to date on the streams of input from Riley's environment so that he can be assessing what's happening next to see if it makes sense and to see if it's fair because it's when he gets input that conflicts with what the previous expectation is that he's like, ah, now it's my time to drive this bus.
0: Yeah. The other thing that I think we wanted to talk about is whether joy would be the first emotion
1: Yeah, uh, that is another thing I have an issue with. I think it's probably more likely that Joy, being very self-centered, doesn't realize that sadness is already there when she first shows up because we see that Joy's first moment of being present in Riley's mind is when Riley is born and smiles at her parents or maybe just the first time Riley smiles at her parents, which if it's that, then that would be a while after she was born. But sadness would have been there probably from the moment that Riley was born. Honestly, you could make a case for anger and fear being there from the moment Riley was born because birth is such a traumatic experience for just, you know, the organism. Like even before you're coming into terms with like active thought and things. With the way that our teeth are formed, like there's a layer, and this is going to sound like a tangent, but trust me, it, it circles back around. When our teeth are being formed like in our jaw, And this is true for other mammals and stuff too. A layer of enamel is applied like every day. And the thickness of that layer is correlated with the amount of stress the body is under and like cortisol levels and things like that. So in animals that are weaned, you can see a line in the teeth where the layers, they're like tree rings. The layers are thinner because... You've been under a lot of stress when you're being weaned. There's also often a similar line for when you were born because it's such a traumatic event. So we know that birth is traumatic, it's painful. Kids usually cry when they're first born because it's such a shock. The environment is completely different. Any expectations or idea of the reality you're in is suddenly changed. So joy would not be the first emotion, is what I'm basically saying here. Sadness and anger probably even disgust would be there
0: first. Yeah. You, you <laughs> I'm would just ha- amused by the idea of a baby being born and just being disgusted by it. It's like, "Well, fuck this."
1: <laughs> I mean, you're cold and wet and in pain probably or at least uncomfortable in a lot of ways and I'm sure you have a dirty diaper before you smile. Babies are unhappy about being wet and being poopy before they're capable of at least expressing joy um whether or not they can feel it before that is really hard to know for obvious reasons but yeah my point being i think that's just joy being self-centered and sadness was there before if not at the same time physiologically at least that's what
0: makes sense that's fair so i think that was our tangents do you have any fun facts
1: so i guess i'm just running this section for this podcast which i guess is fine you usually do it so fun fact that i encountered when i was looking at the credits to identify some of like the psychology consultants is that there are just so many weird and fun cameos in this movie. For example, the mind worker cop Jake is Flea. Oh. Huh. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting. And also, like, there are some comedians who have some cameos, like the forgetter Paula is voiced by Paula Poundstone. Hmm.
0: The ones that I had noticed when we were doing it is the two guards for the subconscious, who have, like, a little skit that is just a bizarre little addition of, like, Oh, whose hat is this? Oh, it's my hat. I wrote my hat in it. Well, I wrote my hat in my hat. And they're voiced by Dave Goles and Frank Oz, who are both, do a lot of the voices for the Muppets, and Frank Oz was Yoda, which is particularly fun because the guards are called Guard Frank and Guard Dave, but Guard Dave is played by Frank and Guard Frank is played by Dave. Huh,
1: how weird. They do like a whole who's on first thing. Yeah. Any other fun facts?
0: I don't. I think a lot of the sort of fun facts for this were really just part of the episode because they're sort of the fun world building things. Okay, so that's the episode for this week. Please do check out our social media. You can find all the links in the show notes below or just search Unramblings on any social media platform we come up. Do also check out our YouTube channel. We'd love it if you'd go and subscribe and check out everything that we're putting up over there. Let us know what you think of this episode. Let us know what other things you'd like to hear us talk about. We're always looking for new content to work on.
1: Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time. We were talking about how joy is the worst. Are we done talking about how joy is the worst?
0: We're sort of talking about how joy stops being the worst. Hmm.
1: Uh, do you want to go back to why she's unreliable or that she's terrible and sucks
0: no I I think we can do this
1: from half